since the start of time, since the start of creation, has and is revolving around the person and work of Christ. When we come to Christ as our Savior in simple, childlike faith, we will find salvation rest. We have a greater high priest. We only need Jesus to be our advocate. Well, I want to begin today by just thanking those of you who have been praying for my dad lately. Uh, three weeks ago, he had a complete heart transplant. He's been waiting to receive a heart for about six years or so, and uh, his old heart was only functioning at about 8%, and his chance of living for two more years uh, was rather low. It was rather small. On the day of the procedure, before they wheeled him down for surgery, we all had a kind of a goodbye moment with him, and, and we prayed with him. Because, you know, there's a part of you that realizes that he may not make it through the procedure. Now, as you can imagine, it's a rather intense surgery. It lasted about 12 hours, and, uh, and all you can really do is just trust and hope and, and believe that the medical team knows what they're doing. I can't tell you how overjoyed we all were when we received the word that my dad had pulled through the surgery uh, just fine. Now, recovery for him has gone rather well. Uh, he was actually discharged from the hospital this past Wednesday. He told me the other day on the phone that he's feeling better now uh, than he's felt in years. And uh, it's a little bit surreal to me because all I've ever known since I was a little boy was a dad who was very limited in his physical activity due to a bad heart. And so moving forward, we know that there will still be risks and challenges, and it won't be a walk in the park, but, but it's as if he now has this hope for an increased quality of life. I mean, inevitably with time, he'll be able to do things that he hasn't been able to do in quite some time. But you know what? I mean, I look back and realize that these past three weeks could have gone a lot differently. I mean, sometimes what we hope for it doesn't always become our reality, right? You ever been there before? I mean, you, you hoped for healing, but instead the cancer returned. You hoped for reconciliation, but instead the divorce papers were signed. You hoped for the promotion, but you were told that you weren't qualified enough. You hoped by this point in time that you would be out of debt, but it feels as if you're just in a hole that you can't seem to crawl out of. You hope to have a family by now, but all the tests and, and medicine just... You just haven't been, able to get a pre you haven't been able to get pregnant yet. You ever been there before? You see, sometimes we have these moments in our life where we're just disappointed. It seems as if there is no hope. Perhaps you're here right now, and you're in the middle of a circumstance that you never anticipated being in the middle of, and yet it feels as if all hope has been lost. Well, this weekend, we continue this series called Greater that's been rooted in a letter in the New Testament called Hebrews, and uh, we kicked this series off last month, and where we're going to end up today is in chapter 6 of this letter, and, and the author here is going to pick apart this idea of a greater hope that we have access to because of what Jesus has done for us 2,000 years ago on the cross. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump there now. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, uh, on that table right as you walked in, there should be a Bible back there. Now, Hebrews is towards the back third of your Bible in between the books of Philemon and James, all right? And uh, what we're going to do today is pick up in verse 11 and just allow the text to guide what we talk about today. We're just going to allow it to guide the message and our discussion here. 
Now, as you're jumping there, remember and realize that this letter was written to a group of professed believers who were encountering a lot of difficulty because of their faith. Now, these Christians had recently converted from Judaism and were thinking about going back to their prior religion because life got hard for them. And so the writer's intent is to basically step in the middle of their circumstances and say, hey, before you go back to your Jewish roots, just realize that you would be going from something that is greater, Jesus, to something that is far lesser. And so after picking apart this idea of what rejecting Christ, walking away from Christ looks like, the writer then hones in on this idea of a greater hope. And so pick up with me in verse 11. Here's what we read. He says, our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Now, let's be honest. At first glance, that word hope doesn't inspire a lot of confidence when it comes to our faith, right? I mean, this is the same word that we use when when we say, I hope we win the game. I hope my meeting is canceled. I hope my boss doesn't show up for work today. Now, usually when we use that word hope, it's like what we long for only has a small chance of becoming true or being our reality. And so when we say and we read that we hope our faith will come true in the end, it doesn't leave a lot of room for assurance unless that word hope means something more. You see, in Scripture, the idea of hope is is actually much stronger and goes much deeper than our casual use of it on a day-to-day basis. And so for the sake of clarity, here's a more accurate definition that we're going to go off of today. Hope is this. Hope is the certainty that God is who He says He is, and He will do what He says He will do. Hope is this certainty, it's this confidence, all right, that God is who he says he is, which we read in Scripture, and he will do exactly what he says he will do. He will keep his promises. You see, it's this absolute confidence that God is completely trustworthy, all right? Hope is a deep-rooted belief that we choose to hold on to that God is good, and one day he is going to eliminate and wipe away all evil once and for all. Now, hope, according to Scripture, is never to be determined by circumstances. It is based and rooted in the sovereignty and the greatness of our Lord. Now the next question then becomes, well, how do we know we have it? I mean, what's the assurance of hope in our life, right? Well, according to verse 11 here, it goes back to the measure of love that we give others. You see, the proof of hope is verified by how well you love somebody who is difficult to love. Why is that? Well, because loving others isn't something that we naturally want to do, right? I mean, it's not our default response to to serve or love somebody whenever they really frustrate us. All right, imagine with me for just a moment that, that you're driving down the Lloyd Expressway and someone cuts you off, all right? After you get back into a lane and you speed up to be parallel with that person who just cut you off, all of a sudden the tables have turned and their lane is coming to an end. All right, so you have two options before you. You can slow down and let that individual over into your lane, or you can speed up and cut them off. Now, by a show of fans, how many of you, just being honest, your first reaction would be to slow down and let them over into your lane? Anybody? All right, you're lying, okay? 
You're not telling the truth. How many of you, you would speed up and cut that individual off? I've seen how you drive. Yeah, we're not that good of Christians, are we? <laughs> right, we aren't born into this world with this bent to serve other people naturally, right? It's something that we've got to work on. Now, when our third child is born in April, do you know one question that will never cross his mind for at least the first five or six years of his life? How can I make mommy and daddy's world a little bit easier? Right? Just not going to cross his mind. Rather, if he doesn't eat when he wants to eat, he's going to scream his head off until we give him food. And so the first days of our lives literally are centered around our desires and our needs being met. And so if we truly possess a greater hope that, that is out of this world, and you see, with time, it is going to train us to live and to love distinctively. I mean, after all, if we possess a hope that doesn't have the power to, to transform us and change us, and it's probably not a hope worth holding on to. Let's keep going with verse 12. Here's what the writer continues to say. He says, then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent, which, by the way, is one of the greatest temptations. The longer you follow Jesus is to become apathetic in your relationship with him. He says, instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Now, the author right here talks about one of two ways that we point people to Jesus in our life. Now, the first way, which he explicitly talks about, is imitation. All right, there's imitation. This text challenges us to follow the example of faithful men and women of God. And during the first century, imitation was one of the most effective and valuable forms of education and learning. You see, you had a far greater chance of remembering something if you saw it modeled before your eyes. Now, more than likely, you follow Jesus today because somebody in your life lived out his or her faith in a very transparent and authentic way. The opposite is probably true as well. You don't follow Jesus today. You aren't a Christian because somebody around you didn't do a very good job of imitating Christ. You thought to yourself, look, if, if that's what Jesus is all about, then I want nothing to do with him. Now, I am a Christian today because I had a mom and dad growing up who consistently lived out Scripture before my eyes regardless of who we were around on a day-to-day -day basis. I follow Jesus today because I had two brother-in-laws and a couple youth pastors show me that following Jesus did not mean that you had to give up your man card or you could never have fun anymore. Now, what's interesting is that the people that have been most influential in my life have always been far from perfect, yet they never tried to be somebody that they weren't. Let me free you from something right now. God has never asked for you to be perfect. He just asks that you be transparent and vulnerable. Why? So the people can see the evidence of his grace more visibly in your life. You see, the opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. The opposite of hypocrisy is authenticity and sincerity. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, one of the very first adjectives that describes the early church is this word sincere. And, and in its literal meaning, it means without wax. It was most commonly used by, the term itself was most commonly used by marble sculptors, all right? And so when the Romans would head to the marketplace to buy a marble statue for their home, 
They were looking for a piece of furniture for, for a sculpture that was absolutely perfect. And so knowing this, if the sculpture chiseled too much away on the marble or if the, the rock itself had some imperfections, what he would do was simply cover over those areas, those flawed areas with wax. And so wanting a perfect product and also knowing this, if the marble piece of, of sculpture was perfect, then it was labeled in the marketplace, seen Sarah, without wax. You see, the sculpture and the seller was assuring the buyer that their product, this, this piece of marble, there was nothing that wasn't real about it. It was completely genuine. And you see, whether we know it or not, people around us pick up on our lack of sincerity more than we realize. You see, our, our wax is, is complimenting someone to their face and then criticizing them behind their back to a friend. Our wax is, is posting a photo on Facebook or Instagram that in no way, shape, or form portrays our real life on a day-to-day -day basis. You see, our wax is never admitting that we struggle with anything. Our wax is never admitting to doubts that we may have. Because why? We, we want to portray that we're stronger than we really are. You see, our ability to be right, our desire to be put together, our personal morality has never attracted anyone to Jesus. Rather, when we can live in a very transparent light and model and imitate grace and truth, we show people that there is a greater hope out there to live a completely free life. Now, within our tri-state region here in Evansville, there are approximately 350,000 people who call this area home. Now, of those 350,000 people, just over half do not attend church. It's about 51% or so, and, and that's a very liberal estimate because we're counting people in this kind of demographic who maybe occasionally attend church, who would maybe consider themselves a believer but have never really surrendered their life to Jesus. And so that roughly estimates to about 178,000 people in our community right now who are living without hope. Now, maybe that's just a number to you. Maybe you think this is just some theory that I'm throwing before you to prove a point. Maybe that number doesn't do much to you. But do you know who these 178,000 individuals are? They're our neighbors. They're our friends. They're our coworkers. They're our sons. They're our daughters. They're our in-laws. They're the people that we rub shoulders with every single day of our life. And you know what? They're living without hope. They're enslaved. They're trapped. And the Bible tells us they, that they are destined to a Christless eternity unless we get desperate about authentically modeling what it means to follow after the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who follows me, he who believes in me, though he may die, he will still live. And so we point people to Jesus through imitation. But secondly, we point people through this, through this next thing, and that's invitation. Invitation. At some point, this requires us to open our mouths and invite people to come and see Jesus. Now, one of the primary reasons why we gather each week as the church is because the worship experience here on the weekend is a great environment for people to have a first date with God. You see, it's our desire to create such a contagious culture of hospitality here that even if people don't agree with what we teach, even if they don't agree with what we stand upon, 
The sense of love and service here is just undeniable. And so maybe, just maybe, as people step foot on our Newburgh campus for the first time, their fists will come unclenched with each interaction that they have with a member of our hospitality team, with each section host, with each greeter, with each member of our family ministry team. And you see, all of a sudden, when that happens, our message, the gospel, it becomes a little bit more believable. Why is that? I don't know how this works for you, but God has welcomed me into his family in spite of my past. You see, since 1967, Crossroads Christian Church has existed in the greater Evansville area to do what it takes to go and reach those who may be close to us but are far from God. Therefore, as we move forward as a church, we are going to be even more committed to doing what it takes to make this greater hope accessible to, this 178, to these 178,000 individuals. Now, we're just six weeks away from Easter weekend. Now, for the past several years here at Crossroads, we gather as the church down at uh, Ford Center in downtown Evansville, and it's no secret that it's just more culturally acceptable to attend church on that particular weekend more than any other weekend throughout the year. And so we can criticize that or we can look for ways to redeem it. And so what that means is that people who normally don't attend church are more than likely are going to attend a church or at least open to it on that particular weekend. And so I just want to challenge you with one simple thing, with one question, all right, and then we're going to get back to our text. Who will be connected to Jesus one year from now due to an invitation that you extend to them this Easter? I mean, what if the best gift you could give God this Easter season is simply people? I mean, invitations have the potential to change everything for some. Let's pick back up with our text here, all right? The author gives a very familiar example of someone who placed steadfast hope in God in the midst of some very trying circumstances. Look at verse 13. He says, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name saying, I will certainly bless you, Abraham, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Now, I'm going to need you to hang on with me here for just a moment because there's a lot of teaching to work through, but it's really significant what we see playing out here in this text. You see, Abraham was a man all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back in the first half of the Bible that God used to advance his mission, advance his mission in the world. Abraham trusted God, and so God, in turn, promised him three things. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation through you. I'm going to make you have a great name, all right? And you're going to be a blessing to all people. Now, there's no doubt that Abraham struggled with wondering why God would have selected him for such a task. And so as God continues to remind Abraham of his promise to be a blessing, like what a lot of us do today, he begins questioning God. I mean, he says, God, how do I know this? <laughs> I mean, Lord, how do I know that you can be trusted? I mean, what do I have to fall back on here? Now, I don't know how this goes for you in your home, but when your spouse or, or your kids question you about something, isn't your first response to get a little defensive, <laughs> right? And so rather than God getting frustrated with Abraham's doubts, God gives Abraham an oath and establishes with him what's called a covenant, now, that word is something that we tend to throw around a lot in Christian circles, and, and so let, let's define it. Let's actually put some meat to what we're talking about here. 
As a way to illustrate this seriousness of his promise, God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 to go and do something really weird, all right? He says, go and kill some animals, cut them into two different pieces, and arrange the pieces into two different piles, making an aisle for somebody to walk between. Now again, let's be straight. This is really weird. (laughs) Now to Abraham, though, this wasn't so foreign. Now you see, in the ancient world, if someone in authority wanted to make a covenant with someone lower on the socioeconomic scale, whether that be a peasant, a servant, or a slave, this is how the deal went down. Animals were killed, their body, their body parts were neatly arranged in two different rows, and when the slave or the servant made an oath of loyalty to the one in charge, he illustrated the magnitude of his loyalty by walking between the pieces of the carcass. Why is that? Well, the slave or the peasant was acting out the curse of the covenant and in essence declaring, I swear, loyalty, I swear loyalty to you, and if I don't keep my promise, may this, what's happening here with these animals, may that happen to me. May I be cut into pieces if I don't keep my word. Now, it was completely unheard of for lords and kings to lower themselves to take part in a covenant ceremony by walking between the pieces of mutilated flesh. And so in Genesis 15, when God told Abraham to kill some animals and arrange for a covenant ceremony, Abraham was fully expecting to be called by God to walk through the slain parts of of the animals. And so Abraham went out, he found a three-year-old heifer, goat, ram, turtle dove, and young pigeon. He did exactly what God asked him to do. He cut the body pieces in half and arranged an aisle. The Bible then says that Abraham, he waited and he waited for God to show up. All of a sudden, darkness came over the land. It was pitch black. And in the midst of that darkness, much to Abraham's surprise, God actually showed up. He appeared as a smoking, fiery pillar. Then God, what he did next was he passed through the aisleway between the dead animals as a way to verify the promise to Abraham to bless him. Now, just a little side note here. A marriage in Scripture is called a covenant, right? That's why a bride walks down the aisle between two families to meet her groom. She's acting out, the couple both are acting out the covenant. Now here in this instance, this took Abraham by surprise. There's no doubt that it startled him because what God was telling Abraham was, I will bless you, Abraham, and if I don't, I promise I'll die. You see, God promised Abraham to be torn into pieces if he didn't bless him. Now, as incredible and serious as a promise that is, Abraham also had to be startled because you know what God didn't ask Abraham to do? He didn't ask Abraham to walk through the pieces of flesh. No, the ceremony ended, and according to verse 18 in Genesis 15, here's what we read. It says, God made a covenant with Abraham that day. Now, as one pastor says, this was unheard of. I mean, it was amazing for the Lord to come and walk through the pieces, but for the servant to not make an oath? Abraham knew what this meant, though he didn't see how it could be. It meant that God was making the promise for both of them and was taking on the curse of the covenant. 
In essence, God was saying, not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep my word, Abraham, but I'll be torn to pieces if you don't. And you see, what God says to each of us today is, I want to bless you even if that means that I must die. I want to bless you even if that means I must be consumed by darkness, even if that means that I must be cut into pieces. You see, what happened in Genesis 15, God having that covenant ceremony with Abraham, it was actually foreshadowing of another covenant that would later be made between God and mankind. And you see, that was the day when God was consumed by darkness. It was the day when the physical body of God himself was cut into pieces, was cut by the Roman soldiers' beatings, by the nails that they had driven into Jesus' wrist and his ankles. And you see, Jesus absorbed the curse of the covenant. Why? So that we could be connected back to God, back to our Father, our Creator, in a relationship with Him. Now, this is precisely why a guy named Paul would later write this in Galatians chapter 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us, Jesus did, in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's talking about us, just non-Jews there, through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And so the writer of Hebrews gives this example of Abraham in his letter to connect how the covenant back then was a foreshadowing of the greater covenant that God later made through the work of Jesus on the cross when he said, it is finished. And by the way, Jesus, he was a descendant of Abraham who culminates the promise of the blessing of all people by enabling the salvation message to be for all nations. Let's go back to our text and and check out what verse 15 says about Abraham. It says, then Abraham waited patiently And he received what God had promised. Now, just because Hebrew says here that Abraham waited patiently, don't be deceived into thinking that he did this perfectly, all right? In fact, there were several moments when he and his wife just absolutely blew it. On one occasion, when he was about 99 years old, Abraham and his wife Sarah were getting impatient about not being able to conceive a child. It doesn't take a biology or an anatomy lesson to understand their concern, (laughs) right? And so from Abraham's perspective, God had told him that he would bless the world through his descendants. But you know what? That's a little difficult when you can't even get pregnant. And so look at the advice that Sarah gives Abraham in Genesis 16, verse 2. It says this. So she, Sarai, Sarah's name at the time, said to Abram, Abraham's name at the time, the Lord has kept me from having children. So what should you do? Go, Abraham, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, by brief show of hands, how many of you think this advice would go over well in your home? (laughs) Right? I mean, this is horrible. This is not great counsel here. But notice how controlling Sarah is. She says this, in essence, hey, perhaps I can build a family through her by you, Abraham, having sex with her. I mean, that's just crazy, right? Talk about great candidates for the Mari Povich show, you know what I mean? (laughs) But don't we all try to do the same thing? 
I mean, don't we try to take matters into our own hands when it just seems as if things aren't playing out the way that we think that it should? I mean, when we see no movement, doesn't it just seem logical to take charge and, and control circumstances? You see, Abraham and Sarah learned then something that's just as true for us today, and it's this, that the place where our hope resides is revealed in our moments of waiting. The place where our hope resides is revealed in our moments of waiting. I don't know how this goes for you, but when I have to wait and be patient, my over-desire to control and manipulate is exposed. I'll never forget uh, when I made the decision to marry my wife, Savannah, I had just completed my first year of Bible college. Now, I knew that in order to propose, I had to have a ring, and to have a ring, I needed to have a job, and so I went and I worked for an auto mechanic that whole summer, saved my money, uh, and then about midway through the summer, I found the ring that I knew Savannah would love, and so I purchased it right then and there. Now, there was only problem, there was only a problem, there was one problem with that. I hadn't talked to her dad before I bought the ring. <laughs> that, Normally, it wouldn't be that big of a deal if we were older, but considering the fact that Savannah had just graduated from high school, that was kind of a big deal. I mean, that was a big step for us. And so I talked with him, and he actually was really cool with it, but his only request of me was that I wait until Savannah finished her first semester of college before I put that ring on her finger. Now, that was in July. We didn't finish finals until December. And so luckily, over the course of time, I managed to let, I I talked him into letting me give the ring to her in November. Now, during that whole entire year from July to November, or at least half the year or so, I obsessed over getting engaged. I mean, it consumed my mind. It was all I could think about. I dreamed about it at night. When people would come over to my house, I'd take them up to my room and I'd show them the ring that I had purchased Savannah. I mean, there were moments where I just felt like I was going insane, you know what I mean? And you see, waiting teaches us this difficult truth that that life really isn't about us and the world does not revolve around our every desire. And you see, much of life, much of life is spent in the waiting, isn't it? I mean, right now, you're you're waiting to finish school. You're waiting to graduate. You're you're waiting to see if you're going to get accepted into the graduate school of your dreams. You're waiting to see how your interview went. You're waiting to become a grandparent. You're waiting to retire. You're waiting for a child to come back to the Lord. We all have moments of waiting, and it can be a really good teacher. Yet it can also be really challenging. And so here's the thing. If we're always wanting the next best thing, If we can't find contentment with where we are, if we're always wanting to control the outcome, then maybe we need to ask ourselves, where are we ultimately placing our hope? You see, sometimes what we long for reveals what we're living for. And so what's your time of waiting teaching you? What's your primary focus right now in life? What does your impatience tell you about where you're ultimately placing your hope? Now perhaps, and this is easy to preach, it's easy to say, it's easy to teach, but perhaps this prolonged season of waiting has come to you right now to strip you of this illusion called control so that you can see that hope in Christ is far greater and more sufficient. Well, let's finish up with our text today. Skip down to verse 18 in in chapter 6. The writer says this, 
So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. This is why as followers of God, we're called to completely to live in complete truth. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge, that's a key word there, can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Now remember, these believers were encountering a lot of persecution because of their faith. The government was confiscating their property. Friends were betraying them. Their children were being harassed out in public. You see, these Christians felt like aliens in a foreign land. And the implication of this word refuge here is that this church, this group of believers, they were refugees. And if you think about it, refugees are are weak, they're helpless. They're vulnerable, they're susceptible to attack, and they wander from place to place seeking protection. And yet the promise in this verse is is not that that we're going to be protected from every storm that comes our way. The promise isn't that that life's going to be easy. (laughs) No, the promise here is that if we flee to God for refuge, that with time he is going to show us that he is who he says he is, and he will do exactly what he says he will do. Look at verse 19. This hope... As a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls, it leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Now, many times throughout this book, we're given nautical metaphors and analogies to help us understand what our relationship with Jesus is like. And here we see that our hope is like an anchor. Now, I want you to notice that it doesn't say that, that it's like a, an anchor for our minds. Why? Because you can't always rationalize our faith. Our hope is not like an anchor for our hearts because we don't always feel like we're connected with God. No, our hope is an anchor for our soul because our souls are the most important parts of us. And think about it like this. An anchor is most utilized when the waters are choppy and the storm clouds are brewing. And though the wind and the waves may be pulling the boat one direction, it's the grounding work of the anchor that keeps it stable, unmovable, and away from the rocky shoreline so that it ultimately doesn't get damaged. Again, God is not promising us a storm-free life absent of grief and harm. No, he promises us a storm-proof life where he will take care of us if we choose to stay tied to him. And so as we close today... I just want to leave you with one simple question. Now, I am not so naive to believe that we've all walked in here today just nailing it when it comes to this whole following Jesus thing. All right? Anybody? No. All right? But we've all walked in here today tying our life and putting our hope into something or or someone, right? And so my question for you, whatever that thing, that person, that object may be, my question for you is this. Am I tying my life to something that can't deliver what it promises? Am I tying my life to something that can't deliver what it promises? Again, we're all tying our lives to something for you. It's that hobby that you can't let go of. It's that relationship that makes or breaks your mood throughout the day. It's, it's the position at the workplace that gives you a sense of significance and worth and, and value. You're tying your life to that thing that you're pouring all your money into or what gives you where a lot of your time goes. I guess what I'm getting at is that 
If we're not tying our lives to Jesus, then it's only a matter of time until our lives capsize and we feel hopeless and helpless and it feels as if we're just drowning in the difficulties of life. Horatio Spafford was a uh, Chicago businessman who lost everything in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Two years after the Great Fire that nearly wiped out the entire city, he sent his wife and four daughters over to England for a trip. He stayed behind to to work on on rebuilding his business. Four days after he had sent his girls away, he received a telegram from his wife that simply said, saved alone, what shall I do? You see, a few days into the trip, the, the boat had actually capsized and it had claimed the lives of all four of his daughters. And so he immediately boarded a ship to go and be with his wife over in England. And as his boat went over the very spot where his daughters had drowned, he wrote a song that I've asked our band to come out and sing. And more than likely, you've probably heard this song before if you've ever been to a church or been a part of a church before. And so what I want us to do as we kind of wrap up today is is I want you to listen to the words that will be sung. I want you to read the words that will be up on the screen. I want you to ask yourself, what am I tying my life to? Am I tying my life to something that, that ultimately can't deliver what it promises? And then when or if you're ready, I want you to stand up at some point in the song as a way to simply declare that you're placing your hope in Jesus. Because remember, he doesn't promise a storm-free life, but he does promise a storm-proof life if we put our hope and trust in him.